Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. John Legend has a new album out called Bigger Love, and I recently sat down with him virtually to talk about that album, about current events. He's been a longtime advocate for criminal justice reform and an outspoken opponent of Donald Trump, among other things. So we had a lot to talk about. Let's get right to that interview. I'm not sure that I've ever had a musician schedule an interview for 8 a.m. before. <laughs> you should see my schedule all week and all last week. We've been working early. You know, the bottom line is my kids wake up around 7, 7.30, so I'm waking up usually that early anyway. And uh, so I don't keep my old musician's hours. Was there a time when you kept uh, more standard musician's hours? Well, when I was a bachelor and young, and uh, you know, I would stay in the studio sometimes till one or two in the morning and wake up a little later. But now I go in usually around noon and I'm done before dinner. So in the morning I wake up and hang out with the kids. I work out, I uh, do a few calls or whatever uh, to handle some business and then go to the studio and then uh, I'm home by dinner time and then I'm done working. So that's usually my schedule. Uh, and then when I'm on the road, it's obviously a whole different schedule. You've always struck me as a fantastically disciplined person. Uh, what's the least disciplined thing about you? <laughs> I, I'm pretty disciplined. Let me think what is not disciplined about me. It's interesting because Chrissy is cleaner and tidier at the house than I am. I'm not a slob, but relatively speaking, my wife is more, more neat and obsessed with getting everything physically in order at the house than I am. The new album is, is really great. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. Uh, it's funny, you've made more politically charged albums in the past that might be more directly suited to this moment. Right. It, you, you can't really pick <laughs> your times to that extent. Albums take a long time yeah. to make. Yeah, they take a, a while to make. And even after you've finished writing it, there's still quite a distance between writing it and putting it out so you can't ever be sure exactly what environment you're going to be releasing it into but here we are we're at this moment i made the music primarily in 2019 but i also wrote a few of the key songs early 2020 and we were wrapped on writing songs right before we went into quarantine we didn't know we were about to go into quarantine but we uh, got done with what we thought was a really great album by uh, you know late February, as far as writing the songs and recording the demos, and you know they were already pretty much close to the finish line. The only things that needed to be done were a few horn overdubs, a few string overdubs, and some of our featured guests hadn't put their vocals on yet. And then we had to mix and master all that, and that's what happened over the last few months. Uh, trying to do it with you know distancing and and all these other things made it a little more complicated, but it, it was doable. We got it done. There's certain songs that could be read in a more political way. Uh, Never Break is about a relationship, but I could also hear it as, as another kind of anthem. Yeah, it was always meant to kind of feel like both. I talk about the water rising and the mountains shaking, and I talk about it being bigger than you and me. And so the idea of the song was that it could, it could be about a couple just, you know, saying that they're going to stick together through tough times. But I think it's more about human resilience and about the power of love to help us get through tough times anyway. And uh, one of my team members has always said she felt like it was it was an ode to our democracy that that, <laughs> that we could, uh, you know, get through even these challenges that we're seeing hurled at our democracy. But um, I believe it is an anthem of resilience one way or another, whether you choose to see it as 
just for you and your loved one or in a broader context? If it is about uh, our democracy, are you sure we'll never break? Uh, given I'm, the not, this? I'm not. I'm <laughs> yeah. not. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I'm a, an optimist by nature, but I can see what's happening. And, and I think if Trump gets reelected, we won't have democracy as we know it after his second election, because he's already pretty much thrown off all the guardrails, just things that seemed kind of small and kind of got buried in, in the news, like him firing all these uh, inspector generals at the different departments that are supposed to hold uh, people accountable, him uh, refusing to give his taxes, him actively intimidating and discouraging people from voting. We're very close to being a democratic government in name only if he can ignore accountability, ignore checks and balances and intimidate voters in the press, then we're not a real democracy. So we're on the brink right now. You've been a longtime advocate for criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, these issues are, are far from new to you. What surprised you, if anything, about this current moment? I don't know about surprise, but I think I'm hopeful seeing this moment because I see the conversation moving leaps and bounds from where it was before. And I think part of it is due to the sheer volume and the diversity of the coalition uh, in the streets, marching, protesting for justice, you know, asserting that Black Lives Matter, even seeing a Republican senator utter those words. I think there's a broader coalition out there in the streets right now. And I feel a lot of momentum toward us making real serious change. And I think the activists have escalated their demands. I think for a while it was reform or retrain. And now that word defund, which has become a controversial word, but it's provocative and it makes you have a bigger conversation about why do we spend so much money on policing, jailing and imprisoning people when those funds could be used in other ways that would make our communities more healthy and more safe. So I think the move from mere kind of sensitivity training and implicit bias training to let's rethink fundamentally the way this whole society is structured and the way our local budgets are structured, I think is a positive move when it comes to moving the conversation toward justice and towards peace in our communities. When you see that only in the last month have opinions among white people shifted to understand that the criminal justice system, that police treat black people differently. I, I mean, on the one hand, I guess it's good that the opinions have finally shifted, but on the other hand, isn't it hard to say like, what took so long? How do you kind of yeah. balance that? Yeah, it's frustrating because black people have been saying this for a long time. It is frustrating, but I will say videos make a big difference. And we saw it with the Rodney King video uh, when I was a kid, but we've seen it more recently with this George Floyd video. I just think the length of time that they were on his neck, the repeated cries that he couldn't breathe, cries for his mom, cries from the crowd around him to that he couldn't breathe and that they were going to kill him, and the look of just indifference on the police officer's face. I think this video is different, you know? It's different than a lot of the conflicting accounts we'll hear when we don't have video or the oh, I feared for my life uh, that that the officer Wilson said uh, when he was in the struggle with Michael Brown. You know, a lot of times people give police the benefit of the doubt, though we found that whenever there's video, it often contradicts what the police report. But in our history, white people, I think, have been given reason to believe that they should trust the police because the police do treat them pretty well most of the time. It's hard for them to realize that we see the police in a completely different way because we've been 
the subject of so much brutality and unfairness and injustice over the years that we have no reason to trust the police's account. We haven't been given reason to trust the police's account. Is there rage and anger in you? It doesn't come out in your music. It doesn't come out in your in your presentation to the world, but is it in there at injustice? I don't carry much rage. I'm, I think, by nature optimistic. I'm by nature peaceful. I'm by nature someone who wants to find common ground. And so my disposition is not rage and anger, but there's something there that makes me speak up for progressive ideals, makes me speak up for uh, justice and speak out against injustice. And I guess it's a sort of righteous indignation or something, but it doesn't present as rage. <laughs> it doesn't present in a, you know, in a kind of angry tone. But, you know, I'm thinking about these things all the time and I have a real point of view when it comes to these things. It just doesn't express itself in a way that comes off as full of rage, which can be, it it might be useful sometimes because it allows me, um, and it's not strategic, it's just the way I am. (laughs) That's just my disposition. My dad's the same way. He's just, I'm very similar to him personality wise, but I think it's helpful because sometimes it allows people to listen to you that may not have listened to you otherwise, because it feels like an approachable conversation, even though the ideas you're proposing are are pretty uh, progressive. What are your current thoughts about running for office someday? I don't want to. (laughs) I really love making music. I love making music for a living. I love the fact that I get to do this. I get to write songs for a living and and perform live in front of audiences. I would not get the same kind of joy from working in politics. Is that a hundred percent you'll never run or or could that change? I think life is unpredictable, (laughs) but I'm not hedging. I'm I'm, I'm truly, in my mind, I don't believe I would run. But ask me again when I'm 60. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> there are people on further to the left who feel that sort of liberals, I guess, including yourself, progressives, that they're too preoccupied with Donald Trump, that he's actually just a symptom mm-hmm. of a larger disease. And oh, yeah. That, yeah. Well, I think two things are true. One, I think the entire Republican Party has become a nihilist party. It was like that during Obama. They basically have no interest in actually governing and they just want to make it so their rich donors uh, have lower taxes and less regulation and pretty much don't care about anything else. And they have no interest in actually running the government well. You saw that even during George Bush's era where he would, you know, assign like a guy who, the guy he assigned to run FEMA, for instance. When you preach for so long, the government is the enemy Uh, and that we don't need the government and everyone should be every man and woman for themselves. It's hard to actually run the government well because you've already said you don't think it has a a function that people need in society. So you end up just hiring your cronies to do things and end up not doing it well. And so they've been preaching that doctrine for so long that what's left of the party is pretty much a party of, of nihilism. It doesn't matter. We just want to own the libs. We don't actually have to do our job well. And that preceded Trump. But Trump is singularly also an awful person. He is a bigot. He's a narcissist. He's a liar. All the things we've seen publicly on display for so long. And he's also pretty incompetent, which is interesting as an opponent of him because his incompetence probably saves us sometimes Yes, because he can't accomplish all the things he would like to do or the things that occur to him briefly in his undisciplined mind. You know, if he were more competent, we probably have more to fear from him than if he were less competent. But, 
Either way, he's singularly bad, but he's part of a trend in the Republican Party. You once named uh, Nat King Cole as one of your role models. I thought that's that's really interesting. It's not a name you hear often from people under a certain age, Mm -hmm. but a, a brilliant, talented guy who also broke a lot of barriers. Could you explain how you discovered him and what he means to you and what it means that he's one of your role models? I discovered him through my dad. Uh, my dad listened to him. My dad liked some of those crooners like Nat and, you know, Johnny Mathis and 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 others. And um, Nat King Cole just always, I don't know, something about his tone, his piano playing, his phrasing. It was just so beautiful to me. And uh, as I got older, I found out one of my other favorite singers, Marvin Gaye, really looked up to Nat King Cole as well. And I think my singing style is probably most influenced by Nat King Cole, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder with a little Curtis Mayfield, I think sometimes. Mm. If I were to trace my vocal lineage, I feel like those are the most influential um, artists to me. And like you said, Nat King Cole broke a lot of barriers. Sometimes I've had visions of me hosting a variety show like his uh, with music and talk and comedy and all that stuff. When Chrissy and I are doing these uh, Christmas specials and Father's Day specials, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of Nat King Cole sometimes. And uh, I even did a pilot for a show called, uh, I forget what the exact title was, but it was basically a kind of like a Jules Holland type show. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Jules Holland. I have, yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, Nat King Cole has always been a role model in that sense as well, too. When I hear the harmonies on Conversations in the Dark, yet again, can't help hearing the, the church. I mean, it, mm-hmm. and it, which was your, your earliest musical influence, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's I, always going to be there. And I think Never Break feels in some ways almost like a hymn to me. And uh, there are always going to be elements of gospel in, in my singing and in my writing style. It was just such a formative time for me as a musician. And I know your family, your mom at least was very religious early on. And that was part of why you were, you, you were homeschooled, I guess, because they took prayer out of schools, not because you were so smart. Uh, it just was a bonus, I guess. It was a weird confluence of. Uh, well, I know, I don't know if they explicitly homeschooled us because they took prayer out of schools, but they were trying to be the best Christians they could be. And we had a Christian school in my hometown run by an evangelical Christian church. And they sent us there for a couple of years, but there was a tuition and it got to be a bit expensive for them, given all the things they needed to do for their four kids. And so they decided instead they would, through the Christian school, do a homeschool program where they taught us themselves. And, you know, occasionally someone from the school would drop by and check up on us and advise our parents. But they, our parents taught us, my mom mostly, while my dad was at work. And uh, by the time you made it back to uh, regular school, you skipped a couple grades and they called you Dookie, I yes, believe. That is, that's a fact. That is a fact. <laughs> how did the sort of the social aspect of being the, a young kid like that in, in class, how did that affect the way you are? Well, I, when I was young, I was definitely a nerd and also two years younger than everyone else. So I was slow. Like I was slow at uh, making friends slow at talking to girls, like everything, I was just behind. And you can understand why, you know, you walk into high school, you're 12 years old, everyone else is 14. You would be socially behind. Two years is a big difference during that time in your life. I eventually caught up and I was, by the time I graduated, I was student body president, prom king, all these other things. But music was always my way of connecting with people. So the one thing I wasn't shy about when I was you know, a freshman in high school, was the fact that I could sing. And so that opened me up to friends in, you know, in the music and theater community at school. And it just made other kids notice me 
and say, oh my God, you sound so good. And you know, it starts a conversation, opens you up socially. And that's the reason why I was able to open up in all these other ways was that music opened that door for me. When did you realize you could sing? I was pretty young. Uh, when I started to fall in love with music, I started taking piano lessons when I was four. I started singing in the church choir when I was seven, and I was begging to sing in the church choir probably for a year or two prior to that. And at that time, you're only comparing yourself to the other kids next to you or the other kids in school. And I was standing out by that point, you know, by the time I was seven or eight, I was standing out. I had another cousin who was a little older than us, who was a really good singer too. And we were like two of the kids in my church that could really sing. And as I got older, when I was in school, I was always one of the better singers uh, in my school. And uh, I guess I started thinking by the time I was eight or nine that I was one of the better singers in my around me. And I wanted to be on Star Search and I wanted to be on the Grammys. And, you know, I started to dream big like that. And um, yeah, I kept going and here we are. You know, your mom obviously had a tough time during those years. And you nevertheless, like, were like a super achiever in the face of all that. How did you manage that and how did the rough times she went through affect you and how does it even affect you going up till now? And I know she's doing better, obviously. Yeah, I think, well, she started me off so well. Uh, she was a really good teacher for me when we were kids and for all of us when we were kids. And by the time she fell into a depression and was estranged from us for a while, I was already pretty well prepared, though, you know, I was still 11 years old and I had a lot to learn in life, but I was already ahead of my peers in so many ways and even ahead of people that were a year or two older than me in a lot of ways. And so I was pretty well prepared and I think part of my coping mechanism for the family troubles we were going through was to just put my head down and be the best I could be at everything when it came to school and music and everything else. I think I wanted to be busy, so I didn't think too much about my family situation. I wanted to be, you know, in choir rehearsal or in play rehearsal and uh, student council meetings. I just wanted to be at school and not at home worrying about you know, what was going on with my family. I loved Ula. It, it reminded me of, of another song I really liked by Jadena called Bambi. Uh, oh, I don't know I, that I, one. I'll check it out. I love Jadena, though. The, it's the only other song that I know of that does the doo-wop meets trap thing. Yeah. But so, but I was wondering whether it was, you know, independent invent, because obviously parallel invention, they call it. Right? Yeah, I, I, I think it makes sense because both of us have kind of an old school sensibility, but both of us have grown up in, you know, a hip-hop era and, and so much of our... Uh, our peers are making music that is infused with trap beats and trap sensibilities. It makes sense that people like me and Jadena would do something like that. And Wild, I think, has one of your best choruses ever. I really love that That's song. It's a good chorus. <laughs> it's very memorable and very soaring. And I, I can't even take credit for writing the chorus. The guys from TMS wrote it. Um, and it was fun collaborating with them. And I, I think it's, was it the Charlie Puth track that you said your kids, that it's your, your kids' favorite song? That is true. <laughs> they love it. That's the easiest course for them. <laughs> were you uh, were you actually sitting down with Charlie? Absolutely. We were in the yeah. same room. I pretty much wrote the whole um, vocal part and he wrote the uh, music and he's so fun to work with. He's just so energetic and creative and loves R&B and jazz and soul music and and we had a good time. When you say that Rafael Sadiq, who is, a, of course, a, a real genius, when, mm -hmm. when he 
helped you finish these songs. And he added, I, I think you said like his special sauce or something like that mm -hmm. to, to each song. Can you give some examples of, of what that means? Because I think also the, the category of executive producer is a very confused one. No one knows what the hell that means. And maybe that's because it means something different every time. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a flexible definition. Sometimes it's more slapped on for somebody just because they have is contractually, uh, they're in that position with <laughs> power to be called executive producer. But with Raphael, he truly helps me bring the album together. And part of it is I record at his studio. Part of it is I use the same engineers that we've used for the Christmas album that we did together in 2018 and 2019. Part of it is we use the same other personnel, like the same string arranger, mixing engineer. All those people are the same team. Um, and he has a, a guy that works with him directly that's named Jamel Adisa that really was like a crucial person for both the Christmas album and this album and just helping us hire musicians, arrange horns, just do everything we needed to do. And, and then also Raphael's ear is just great. So I play him everything and, and he helps me decide which songs we put on the album, or the order that we put them in. And then when tracks need something else, he usually helps me figure out how to get it on there. So sometimes it's him personally playing the bass or playing the guitar, or it's him calling a drummer that he likes to add some live drums to, to the program drums that we had with another producer, or uh, he's the one that introduced me to the string arranger that we used on all the tracks. Um, and so he, as a musician, plays on records. So he played on that Charlie Puth record uh, and just made it a little more funky. And then he played on the Slow Cooker record and made it more kind of churchy and D'Angelo-ish. Uh, he played on uh, One Life, the record I did with Anderson Pack. played on several songs throughout the album. But even when he didn't play, his input was there to make sure that we were able to finish the tracks in the way that I wanted them finished. And I think with his help, I've gotten better as a recording artist getting from song to uh, completion, from song to production and arrangement and record and album because I feel like we've done a better job than I've ever done at finishing tracks and getting them to a place where I'm really excited with where they are. Even on uh, Wild, he's the one that said we should call Gary Clark. He uh, called in the, the drummer to play the live drums on the solo section of the song. So it's little sprinkles like that that elevate the songs and make them much stronger as records. Are you still writing 50 songs to get to the 16 or 17? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I don't know if that ever changed. It just it's felt like the right strategy for me. I think other people are very different and, and it works for them. And other artists know exactly what the album's going to be before they start it, or at least they know what the theme is and what they want to write about. But a lot of times I'm not sure until I get into it. And so I have to try some things before I know what the album's going to be. Does that mean, I mean, obviously you have dozens of outtakes. Will we ever hear those? Who knows? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I have so many outtakes, yes. But uh, who knows if we'll ever put them out. One of them is on this album, actually. It's a song called Always. It was an outtake from uh, Love of the Future. So and that is the, there are artists who start, who do that. You know, they, they go to their, uh, you know, their archives. And, yeah. and is that the first time you've done that, though, kind of pulled from the... I think it is the first time, yeah, that I pulled from a song I wrote not within that cycle. And the reason why was my manager was like, you should listen to some of these old songs we liked that you didn't use. And I did. And then I played them for Raphael, and he was in love with Always. And I was like, yeah, we could, we could uh, make that one work. We did a few changes to the arrangement, but... Uh, 
Yeah, it was always a good song. I wrote it with Esther Dean and DJ Camper, so it had good pedigree, and we just needed to finish it, and uh, we got it right. You've been asked before about the the, con- the Kanye situation. Uh, I'm just curious, like, first of all, have you also heard, which was some of his friends, I know that you're not like the closest in the world, but some people who know him have heard that he might be turning against Trump now. Have, have you heard that that might be the case in the past few weeks? I heard rumors, but then I saw something, I think in the GQ article that seemed like that that wasn't the case. Uh, so who knows? Someone told me they just saw him marching in the streets. That's right. Um, I That's hadn't seen right. that. Yeah, I hadn't seen that. So uh, that was news to me. But, you know, that's an interesting development. We'll see what happens. But as someone who did know him a bit, and he was obviously important in your career, how do you explain the whole thing? What do you think is going on with him? Well, my experience of him was that he was never very political to begin with. We were in many, many conversations together, especially about music, but also about fashion, about life, you know, about women, about, you know, all kinds of things. But we almost never talked about politics. And so I didn't have a clear sense of what his political point of view was when we were, you know, working together more closely and spending a lot more time together. And we've remained friends over the years, uh, over the past few years. But since we don't directly work together, we're just not together as much. And, you know, we see each other at family gatherings like Easter, you know, parties or Christmas parties and things of that nature. But since we don't work together, we don't see each other as much. And so I haven't been privy to his inner thoughts about his political evolution. Of course, I've been privy to the same proclamations and texts and all the things that, and tweets that everyone else in the world has seen. And everyone saw us texting each other and uh, talking about it. But uh, I just don't know like where he is politically. And I didn't really know even when we were together a lot. Do you have faith in his continued ability to uh, to make great music, though? I think if he's focused on music, he can make really brilliant music. He's made some of the most important and brilliant and beautiful pieces of art we've seen in the music business over the past you know, 15 years. I was just in a conversation the other day about the Grammys. And one of the travesties of this era of the Grammys is that Kanye's never won album of the year. Also a travesty that Beyonce hasn't. But bottom line is he's given us some of the best music uh, in this industry over the past 15 years. So he's capable of it. But, you know, he he's also focused on, you know, building a clothing line and he's been very successful at it. And he was always very interested in fashion and always wanted to be as amazing on these visual things as he is with music, always cared a lot about design, always cared a lot about the visuals that accompanied his music. And so it appears that he's kind of focused more on the visual side of the world than on music, but that, you know, he could come back to music anytime. And and the fact that he's been so brilliant for so long on the musical side means that he could do it again. You mentioned the Grammys and it is, you know, it's the number of people who've been snubbed and the fact that, yes, Beyonce never won album of the year, Connie never won album of the year. I mean, it's fairly outrageous. And mm. a lot of people are looking, taking this moment to look at racism in the music industry in general. What in your mind needs to change on that front sort of immediately? Well, the bottom line is the voters are who the voters are right now. And when they vote for something, that's who wins. Um, Bottom line. And I I think I'm part of the uh, recording academy now and I'm, I'm part of the leadership now. I'm on the trustee board. And the bottom line is we have to make sure that the academy 
at least reflects the community of musicians that it claims to represent. And for a long time, a lot of the academy membership was skewed toward older members, way more men than women, way more white guys than was even representative of the music business. And we have to change that. So what that means is getting our recruiting up when it comes to just getting younger creatives that represent what the music industry looks like right now, who's currently making music and are knowledgeable about what's happening currently in music. But also, if some of our older members aren't engaged in the music business anymore, then they should not be voting. And so we have to both bring up more new members and also phase out some of the members that aren't really active in the music business anymore so that we have a voting body that more represents the actual music making community, the record making community. And more broadly, what would you like to see done in the record industry, in the music industry to address uh, racial inequality there? Well, I think, you know, uh, I saw an article recently uh, showing what the corporate suites uh, looked like in some of our film and TV businesses. Uh, I'd be curious to see that same article written about the music business. I don't know for a fact what it looks like right now, but I'd love to see the data. I'd love to see if, you know, the fact that music is such a diverse place when it comes to who's creating it. But are the executives that are making major decisions and selling that music to the public, do those executives reflect how diverse the uh, musical community is? My guess is probably not, but I I haven't seen the data and and I'd be curious to see that. What has your work in film and TV taught you that you then bring back to music? Well, I think I've learned from both music and film and TV how important it is to collaborate with really good people. Film and TV is even more of a collaborative process, I think, than music because there's a lot more moving parts and a lot more different expertise uh, needs in so many different areas. And personnel is just everything when you're trying to figure these things out. Like you really need to trust that you're hiring the right people, people with interesting points of view, people that are good at what they do in in a technical sense, and uh, people who can provide the kind of content that will be moving and interesting. So for our TV and film business, it's really been all about finding the right collaborators. And I think music prepared me well for that because so much of my career has been defined by collaboration and the joy and the and the benefits of collaboration i think a, a song that speaks really interestingly to the moment and, and the video as well is that song penthouse floor all this trouble in this here town all this shit going down when will they focus it's it's really striking if, if it came out today people would be like that's you know they nailed they nailed the moment well can you tell me about that song coming together well, I originally wrote the idea with Greg Kirsten, and um, I've written with Greg since then, and Greg's been a part of a lot of big songs from Adele to Taylor Swift, but he uh, played that group for me. He played that group for me, and I immediately, uh, pretty quickly started seeing this go to the penthouse floor. And originally it was more kind of just seductive, like come back to my place, baby, kind of song. But when I played it for Blake Mills, who produced my last album, we, the more we talked about it, we thought it'd be interesting to use the penthouse floor in a more metaphorical way. And part of it, the idea was to say, elevating allows you to kind of see what's going on below you, but also be distant from it. And But also the song addresses all the people that are left out of the penthouse floor and even Chance's verse talks about uh, all of his friends are left behind waiting in line. 
and they've never been in these rooms, never uh, kind of floated in this upper echelon of society and all these people that are left behind, it's time to let them into the penthouse doors. Let's tear down the penthouse doors. So it's, um, I think the message is one, you know, it's like a celebration that I made it, but also saying, let's not forget about the people that come from my neighborhood or come from Chance's neighborhood and want to be part of the American dream. It can be read a bunch of ways because it's sort of like, let us achieve and make it there on the one hand. And there's also sort of like, you know, there's a little hint of revolution there. Yeah, exactly. It seems like the alternate reading. Exactly. It's like, it's almost like reveling in your success in capitalism, but also critiquing capitalism at the same time. So yeah, it's all, I think all of that's in there. And I like the song so much because it has the groove that it has. And if you didn't listen to the lyrics, you would just have a good time with the song. But if the more you listen to it, it, it like it definitely has layers. It feels like all of me is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be attached to you for life. It's one of those songs. Mm-hmm. What does that song mean to you now, currently? Well, it's always going to be special to me because I sang it at my wedding. We made the video the week of our wedding at Lake Como and, and the place where we fell in love seven years before that. The guy who directed the video was the guy who introduced us. And so there's always going to be something particular and special about that song that will, I'll never have another song in my life that means exactly that to me. And then, of course, it's been my biggest song, you know, billions of streams and so many people have gotten married to it and uh, so many people have covered it. I just saw a country artist on my Twitter feed yesterday that had covered it. And it's just one of those copyrights that are, are just going to be around forever. And I'm grateful for it. You know, I'm grateful that Um, It took my career to another level as far as just more people listening to my music and being interested in what I'm creating. And um, it it opened a lot of doors for me. So I'm grateful for the song and I know I'll be singing it the rest of my life and I'm just fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) You've never had that day where you're like, I cannot, I need like a year (laughs) off. No, I I really (laughs) haven't because you see how people feel when they hear the song and, and that, uh, the fact that they light up and they sing along with it with such gusto, it brings me joy to see them get excited to hear it and see it. I want to ask Kelly Clarkson if she uh, took long-lasting sort of uh, self-esteem from the fact that America once literally voted for her, you know, and that she won the thing. I, I mean, it, similarly, when you're actually named the sexiest man alive, does that <laughs> does that last? Does it does it give you a lasting thing, or, or, or is it just too insane to contemplate? It's 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 kind of silly the whole enterprise, and and of course America doesn't <laughs> America doesn't even vote for you for that editorial <laughs> decision. By the Fair story. enough. At People Magazine, and so uh, I, my advice to anyone who wins it is: don't take yourself too seriously. One way or another. <laughs> and trust me, trust me. People on Twitter will make sure you don't. Anyway, <laughs> there's so so many people are going to need that advice. It's, it's 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 a really widespread problem. But before I let you go, I mean, how does it feel to be an artist in your 40s in in music? Like like how how does that affect things because there's this you know you're still making very contemporary music but there is this thing there's this this feeling of like 40 is like 80 in pop you know <laughs> in some ways you know I, I mean i've thought about it uh, before and uh, i think i've talked about it in an interview before but um yeah i mean very few you know hit songs or hit albums come from people over 40. Most of music and what's in the zeitgeist musically is driven by usually people in their 20s, maybe early 30s, you know, if they're lucky, mid 30s. 
sometimes they're teens as well. And so I know that's a challenge. I know that if, you know, if I made this same album, <coughs> excuse me, when I was 28 or 32, it'd probably do better. <laughs> at a certain point, there's a whole new generation of listeners and they want to listen to the stuff that they discover for themselves, not the stuff their parents discovered. So I know that's part of the story of how music usually works, but all I can do is make music that I think is as great as possible, as beautiful as possible, as transcendent as possible. And uh, I can't control how how the kids receive it. <laughs> I, I just want to make a great album and hopefully it'll find the ears that need to hear it. So that is our show for today. Thanks to John Legend. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Download Rolling Stone Music Now as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.